Welcome back to the Incidental Encyclical Podcast, which accompanies our quarterly online magazine for the classics. Uh, for something to be incidental, it's arrived upon or occurs simply as a natural consequence of something broader. And an encyclical is a, is a letter from a higher authority, meant to be passed on in perpetuity. This project is the byproduct of years, collective decades, of searching among the classics, letters from antiquity weighing down from the past, as we hope to share some of what we've come across with anyone interested. Each issue, we cover three works, roughly one from the ancient, one from the medieval, and one from the modern periods, respectively. These works are chosen in line with our theme for the quarter, and these themes each fit into a larger story we are trying to tell across a year. So in this episode of the podcast, we're doing another talking about writing episode, where we, the editors, discuss in depth one of this quarter's works. In our past bonus episodes for the Incidental Encyclical, where we go into depth on a daunting work or text, we've been confined to the ancient. After all, it's usually much more intimidating to face a work from a time thousands of years removed from now with thousands of years of commentary on it and filled with wisdom drawn from a world all but inaccessible to us today. This time, however, the work that's got all of us trembling most at the thought of writing about it is our modern work for the quarter. For our final issue of 2023, we're writing and talking about Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. To try to keep us on track and maintain some brevity, we're going to each put forward to the other editors one thought that sprung from our reading or rereading of the novel. So let's introduce ourselves, guys, and put forward what's on our mind, minds regarding the 1,000-page magnum opus of the greatest writer from a country of the greatest writers. Um, I'll go first. My name is Michael, and um, this is actually my first time reading any Dostoevsky full stop, um, so it's been quite Ooh. an introduction. <laughs> jumping in and, the deep end. Um, I know, jumping in the deep end. Hopefully I'll be able to shed some... Un, I don't know, uncontextual wisdom to the, <laughs> <laughs> to the podcast without having without having really any other Dostoevsky to to dampen the load. But it's it's been good so far. I've been I've been enjoying it. Um. Well, I'm Samuel, and Mike has already threatened to derail me on a tangent by offering that uh, tautology of uncontextualized wisdom. But I'll restrain <laughs> myself, uh, and I'll try and keep myself on track with this discussion um this is my second and a half time reading brothers karamazov i read it a few years ago tried rereading it about a year and a half ago and made it about halfway and then life got busy um but i'm going to finish it again as we move into uh writing and talking about it as we are now on this podcast uh hello everyone i'm levi i have read dostoevsky's brothers karamazov once, probably one and a half times, to borrow Sam's phraseology, I think I made a start and then finished it probably a year and a half ago. And I'm just getting back into my reread again for the writing of this issue. And um, as as Mike said, when we're discussing, there's a lot to get lost in, especially as, you know, when we're sitting here with Samuel Wilmot, who does have a tendency to <laughs> go off on his occasional tangents. So we're going to try and keep things structured. Uh Mike, I think, had a very good point that might be nice to start us off with. Yeah, I was just um I was just talking before uh with Sam actually. We were just discussing kind of Dostoevsky and what he looks like as a writer and some differences that kind of I found from reading him for the first time. And I think the first the first main thing that I noticed 
in terms of a takeaway from reading the book is how much detail he goes in into every single aspect of every single thing in the book like you you really when you're reading it your your mind paints such a specific picture of exactly what he's trying to get across because he just puts that so much detail into it um and, and i mean it's good from a from a reading standpoint to have that much detail to be able to get out of the book because you can really clearly picture what's happening for me anyway when i read i kind of paint a picture in my head of what's happening mm. um and i guess the the flip side of that is there's so much detail i kind of feel like i'm missing stuff sometimes like as as i'm reading the book to, to give an example um one of the one of the main the main brothers alexi is you know going going along some back roads to visit a gal and he walks past a rickety fence and Dostoevsky for the next two pages describes in really, really intense detail, the inhabitants of the house behind that fence, how it's this really old lady and her rich daughter went back to live with her and they live in a shack and her rich daughter's got all these dresses that she doesn't want to sell, but they're really poor. So they have to go eat at the soup kitchen every day, but she's still got all these rich dresses and all this, like all this like contextual backstory that you would just mm. not even necessarily care about normally, but we, we just have this really rich thought out description of this random kind of thing or person. And as I'm reading it, like I understand the relationship of the mother and the daughter and i get what the author's trying to say but at the same time i almost feel like i'm missing something because there's so much detail like i'm reading it and i understand the detail of what he's saying and i understand the actual um context you know okay there's this mom and there's the daughter but the fact that he's explaining it feels like there's something else that i should get if that makes sense yeah i think um it's a Interesting point. I mean, I still remember the first time I read it. And like you, Mike, I, the first Dostoevsky novel I read was The Brothers Karamazov. And it's definitely um, it's definitely a mountain to climb. Uh, I've since read, you know, most of his others. And I really wish I'd started with something like, um, you know, The Gambler. <laughs> but uh, you're right. There's, especially in his later works, and Karamazov obviously being his last and his biggest, you have such an over burdening of detail and at the same time i still remember my first read you know there's such as you're describing you intuitively know that there's meaning in all these little details yeah i think you brought up in our discussion yesterday um you were comparing it you know yeah, the yeah. reaction to dostoevsky to something like studying shakespeare in high school and there's a big difference yeah just just a contrast with normal you know how how people would usually kind of unpack literary works you know and and to give a classic example that most people are probably familiar with like studying Shakespeare in high school you know like you'd read through in the class maybe one or two stanzas and the teacher would then unpack literally every single word and you know get the religious and psychological and cultural impact of the you know maybe a curtain was blue in the story or mm. <laughs> you know he was riding a spotty horse you know and it's like wow what are the what are the cultural impacts of him riding a spotty horse? What did the author mean by that? You know, and then obviously you in your in your Shakespeare end of end of term essay, you'd intuit that the spotty horse meant that life and death were as one equal, and you know, like stuff <laughs> like that. So, and I guess this is a very different approach to that kind of experience of mm. 
you know, studying liter literature because you kind of can't do that to to a to an extent. You can't like unpack one word because there is like two pages of detail around that word explaining exactly what it is and why. But in that, I feel that he's almost curveballing you by hiding the big picture because you can almost get lost in the details. That's a great point because there's a big narrative going on. Um, I think when you, a few weeks ago when we were talking about this and Mike, you picked up the novel for the first time, you read a little synopsis of it and you said, am I really going to read a thousand page whodunit where they don't tell you who did it? <laughs> I think that was- Literally. A, that's what, yeah. yeah, that's pretty close he, to what I remember Dostoevsky himself says in the prologue, and I quote, you shouldn't read this because it's meaningless. <laughs> oh, not, and I quote, but like pretty much that. Yeah, yeah, like, I do he was like, that, yeah. He was like, oh, to, to any of my critics reading this, reading this novel, just know that I give you the most sympathy for getting all the way through it and then deciding you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't like, think many people it, do, because it is like, there's a kind of a general consensus that it may be the greatest novel ever written. I mean, I don't think you could argue, you know, if it's, you know, Pride and Prejudice or if it's, um, you know, Oliver Twist or whatever. But, you know, there, there is, it is is up there in the literary echelons. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, as you're saying, there, there's a big story going on. You have three brothers. Um, you have Dimitri, who's the oldest, and he's born of the first wife of this man, this landowner, this buffoon, who's named Fyodor Pavlovich. And his first son, Dimitri, is born of a, a fairly noble wife. And then he has two further sons after that wife leaves him, which um, were born of a woman who uh, was sort of a holy fool in the, in the Russian speaking. So she was um, prone to sort of fits and religious ecstasies. And those sons are Ivan, the middle child, and Alyosha. Um, and as you're saying, like the big broad strokes of the story is at some point, right, all these sons have reasons to not get along with their father. They all have a very complicated relationship with him. Mm. He's abandoned them at all at various points. They've all returned to him at various points. Um, and at some point in the story, Fyodor Pavlovich is murdered. And ostensibly, the the first half of the book kind of introduces all the characters, and the second half deals with the trial and the detective, you know, sort of aspect, the whodunit, let's say. Can um, I just caveat with the characters? Mm. You will need about three to four pages of notepaper to keep oh, yeah. track of who oh, is yeah. who and the names and the nicknames of the names and the relationships to each person with regards to who calls them the nickname and who calls them the normal name. Cause I was so, I think at some point, I think the brothers all call um, the youngest brother, Alexi, like as a nickname, but then at the monastery, he was called like Aliotta. Aliosha. Aliosha. And then, yeah, so, Dimitri and his nickname's Mitya to his brothers. Yeah, so. that confused me so much. I thought there was like four new people suddenly. I was like, what the heck is happening? Do they have schizophrenia? <laughs> I think the most the most difficult to a like say a non-Russian reader is probably the one of the characters who is very important in the story, Grushenka. She's a yes. rumored to be sort of a loose woman of the town. And both the father, Fyodor Pavlovich, and his elder son, Dimitri, both are vying for her affection. And that's part of the big kind of drama between the eldest son and the father, between their, their kind of hatred for one another. But her her proper name, so Grushenka's her nickname, her proper name is Agrafenya Alexandrovna, which, and I might be mispronouncing that, that's off the top of my head, but I think you can hear just from whatever, however I butchered her full name, it doesn't sound anything like Grushenka. And I, the same thing, I remember reading it for the first time and you go, hang on a second, 
who's this new woman <laughs> yeah um like meteor what yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean not only is it confusing for an english speaking reader it's um because of the names it's also as you're saying like there's a big story going on a family kind of going through this intense upheaval all these um fractured relationships and ultimately leading to a, a murder trial where the, the end part of the book is essentially the reader trying to work out alongside the detectives who might be responsible for the death of the father um and yet as you're saying especially in that first half of the book you're just constantly constantly being served these descriptions of every little person in the town <laughs> you know from the from the chief of police to the peasant woman who washes this staircase or something exactly and it all feels important which is really annoying because you can't just zone out for a couple of pages you'd be very hard pressed to abridge this yeah. this novel i think mike your point is good because it's something that we probably needed to address sooner in this project um you know we sit here we bring up a classic novel or an ancient work of philosophy or a medieval poem and we say man there's so much meaning and and, and beauty in this work we're gonna unfold what some of what that is as far as we see it and we would love it you know we encourage others to go and do the same that's the really like that's the name incidental cyclical it's this byproduct of searching in these in these works of antiquity um and yet well how do you navigate these works <laughs> you know because sometimes we say look there's this deep meaning hidden at the bottom of the work and some people can't get past page one um so levi how would you like i'm interested like when it comes to something like Dostoevsky, um, how would you navigate that or recommend someone navigate as a first-time reader? Should they take, you know, a note for every time a character's name pops up and try and, you know, map it out? Or I think that one should likely contend to oneself with just having to read each chapter twice. <laughs> that's what I think. I think quite literally that's what I did the first time I read through Brothers. So like like really? my Brothers Karamazov was the first Dostoevsky novel I ever read. And and to this day, I still haven't actually gotten around to reading Crime and Punishment or, or Devils or any of the others. Um, and I would bombard myself with all the names on the first read through, except for obviously the first few chapters. You just take mm. it slowly. You really take the yeah. time to digest. I would bombard myself with names and themes and topics for a, for a chapter and then go back and then with a sort of rough reconnaissance, go back through <laughs> really? to understand again. And that was my That's strategy. That's so interesting. I, because I could not, um, I, like like Mike has, I found myself getting lost too much in the detail that... Mm. When I, I get really back, into it, the descriptions as well. I'm like, wow, that's really, that's a, that's know, cool shack. <laughs> They're good, and there's, a, there's yeah. an entire sub narrative there that is it's worthy of its own like detail. You should see my highlighters for like the first like three <laughs> chapters. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna remember that. That's sick. <laughs> yeah. Nope, forgotten. Yeah, no. I mean, but here's the thing: when I look back on Brothers Karamazov, it's it's somewhat telling that I don't actually remember Brothers Karamazov obviously as a murder mystery novel. Yeah. I there's the there's so much more meaning outside of the core narrative that I do lose track of the core narrative, even having fully read it and thinking back on it. Mm. Um, it's, That's it, what I it mean. He puts all these, he puts all these like, you know, false ends in just to like, just to like keep you off the scent, I reckon. 
I mean, it's interesting because I have this contention that murder mystery novels, and I love, like, I've read all the Sherlock Holmes, I've read a lot of Agatha Christie's and et cetera, mm. but, and, I, and I've enjoyed them all, but I have do contend that murder mysteries are the least mysterious novels of all because you've read it once and then you go, well, I've, it's all explained now. Um, and I've, you know, I've reread maybe one or two, you know, but ultimately there's sort of a point where, okay, I can't unlock much more richness from this because the novel sets it up as a closed sort of system. And once you've seen all the facets of that system, you're in the box, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and so it's interesting because you, I've seen it a couple of times now at, at bookshops, you'll see like early crime fiction box sets and I'll put Dostoevsky in there, either Crime Punishment or Karamazov or something, um, which is, I think, cruel <laughs> to the average reader who goes and buys that and then uh, realises that the actual um, crime part of Crime Punishment lasts less than a third of the book and the rest of it's a... Uh, a story of redemption and and the despair of the Russian soul, but um, but I think Dostoevsky seems to be a common theme in Russian novels. Yeah. Is just the general despair. I've, I've especially um, like from reading other other works by other Russian authors. Like, um, I'll just off the top of my head, I'm trying to think, but Anna Anna Karenina. But I, I find that like. As much as it's funny on one level to call Dostoevsky like a crime writer, a crime fiction author, there's something true that his novels are more mysterious than anyone else's because, as we're talking about now, like, Levi needed to read each chapter twice just to really unlock the the depth of that. Mike's trying to navigate this wealth of detail and stay focused on this overarching narrative. Um, I think I think one thing I'd say if you're reading Dostoevsky, especially if you're reading Karamazov for the first time, is read the chapter heading and then just like either lock it away in the back of your memory or like scribble it on a piece of notepaper to the side of you. Cause the chapter headings are really good. <laughs> Dostoevsky wrote some great chapter headings. Um, and it's like, it's almost like, almost like he's offered the, the little cheat code to each chapter. I feel like in some instances, mm. um, but yeah, there is a wealth and it's, it's difficult to know. Uh, always how to navigate but i think once you reach the end you get you get that perspective yes yeah, um... so you get the cohesive picture it's it's kind of interesting I, I i'd like to draw an analogy here um this is maybe unhelpful to the average reader but i think it is enlightening in some senses that dostoevsky actually reads in the in the way that we're describing of the detail that he provides simultaneous to an overarching narrative it's actually quite similar to a lot of ancient authors Mm. um i'm thinking especially of the iliad by homer Mm. for example where well famously there's the homeric simile where he says oh this occurred and it was like um he fell as though and then you get two pages explaining what what it was like that he fell like Mm. And it's the similar investment of detail or the famous catalogue of ships where you get regional story. And and in it's quite similar, in fact. I feel in Dostoevsky, he does it occasionally with places. He does it with the ramshackle, the ramshackle fence and the and the shack. Yeah. But he also does it with people. There's entire mm. chapters dedicated to the backstories of figures who appear once and then not again, similar. Yeah. Um, and- and he also warns you some, like, not maybe not warns you. That's that's a bit mean, but he'll tell you like, oh, here's this character Smerdyakov. Uh, I'll explain him later, 
yeah. then later on you get to it, he's like, I guess I better do it now. That's yeah. that's more or less yeah. how he writes. He goes, I suppose I better explain Smerdyakov now. And so he'll interrupt the narrative and say, well, now that he's appearing for the first time and in a meaningful context, I'll give you the two chapters of his life story. Oh, and then by the way, now we're going to go back to the dinner party. that we were Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It feels like that. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's a little bit refreshing though, because I don't, in terms of what I've read, I don't feel like many modern classic authors, quote unquote, like, uh, like Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, who are fantastic authors, but they don't really have that style of diving into that exceptional amount of detail. Tolkien does with one. trees. He likes trees a lot. <laughs> it is, but it's kind of meaningful though as well yeah like like because they're he makes them important though if you understand like like ants for something mm. you know like like they are this this really powerful important being in that world which kind of need to be described like that you know what i mean like like they all do it very purposefully i did hear a joke from um a friend of mine um annette young who's an australian author has written two books about uh early kind of federation australia but um she made a joke to me once uh, and said that you can tell that Tolkien painted landscapes in his spare time and not portraits. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. Uh, because that is what he does seem to care about. And Dostoevsky is known as like a psychological writer. Like he's, his preoccupation is with um, psychology. Dostoevsky is renowned as a, as a writer of great psychological depth and all these characters have great psychological depth. And that's something that he's really um, celebrated for. Mm. And, you know, I think this ties in quite well, actually, to a point that you made earlier, Sam. If we're talking about similarities between similarities and contrasts between uh, Dostoevsky and other authors, we've been talking about that mostly on a literary level. But let's say Mm. you wanted to point out something in terms of the psychology of characters on a more symbolic level, an analogy with another early proto-existentialist. Yeah, so Dostoevsky, uh, we've called him an early crime writer, an early psychological fiction writer. He's also called an early existentialist or a proto-existentialist. Um, uh, like along with, you know, so the existentialists, you've got, they're mostly French people and they're mostly awful. Um, but uh, the, the proto-existentialists are, are slightly, no less depressed, but slightly more um, hopeful characters. And that Dostoevsky's one, and the other one is a guy we looked at when we first started this project, and that's Søren Kierkegaard. Um, and so we talked about Kierkegaard and some of his project, his philosophical project, in our first podcast, in our first issue. Um, and one of the things that he kind of did across his work was he tried to point out that there's there's almost like he said that there's he identified three patterns, three ways of behaving, three ways of ordering and living your life um, because he was reacting against very academic and abstract philosophy at his time. He was trying to bring back philosophy to the more Socratic, grounded and lived notion. Um, and so he describes these three patterns as the aesthetic man, the ethical man and the religious man. And these are sort of exclusive categories. You can move from one to the next, but you can't be one and another at the same time. And he also kind of put them in something of a dialectic where you would move from starting at maybe the aesthetic into the ethical and finally the possibility is to move into the religious. And he characterizes these ways of life. The aesthetic is characterized by what you might call hedonism or a love of the material, but it's not just that. It's a love of novelty. It's a love of being enchanted in the world around you. Um, 
there's a beauty it's it's it's, it's it is a pursuit of beauty and it can lead to to a hedonistic tendency but Kierkegaard doesn't say that it has to uh, the second would be the, the ethical man. So it's someone who's going kind to of move beyond that and looks not to the material, to the finite as a source of meaning, but to the infinite. He takes on codes. He takes on patterns of behavior that give him a source of, of meaning and guidance. But often that kind of person loses touch with the finite. He loses touch with the importance of the world he actually lives in. And then Kierkegaard will characterize the third kind of man, which is the religious, and it's kind of like a synthesis of the two. It's someone who's both been to that beyond stage. He's been to the kind of, oh, I'm looking at the universal. I'm looking at the principles that guide things. I'm looking at a code for my life. Um, I have a sort of divine law that that guides me. But I've returned and I participate and I enjoy and I'm enchanted by and I love the material. Um, so apart from those just being, you know, thought-provoking categories that were very influential in modern philosophy i as you're saying about this i want to bring up that i feel like there's a parallel if you want to abstract all of a sudden like let's let's strip all the details that we're being confused by in the novel for a second and just look at the three brothers um the eldest dimitri uh is a hedonist right he wants to be good he's very penitent he's got sincere emotions at the end of the day when he's got money he'll spend it on women drink and chocolate you know what i mean <laughs> and his core conflict in the novel is the fact that he wants to ethically leave behind his current betrothed the noble mm. woman and run away with grushenka yes who is maybe a prostitute i mean it's kind of you know they lightly you know there are differing yeah. opinions in the story about who she is he also, he's very seems, much... he also seems like strangely self-aware for the amount of stuff that he's doing that's what I yeah. was saying, and yeah, he's he's he wants to leave behind his he wants to run away with Grushenka, but he doesn't just mm. abandon his responsibilities. He first needs to pay off his debts. There's still an ethical undertone to his behavior. It's sort of showing a. It's outside of the. It's go, It's going beyond just the surface level critique of the hedonist as yes. someone who has no regard for others. Yeah, and yeah, because he's he is he is thoroughly in love with the world as well like he has this real sense of um, i mean there's a there's a point towards the middle the climactic point in the middle of the book where he kind of goes in this massive hedonistic fling where he's contemplating shooting himself um because he's worried that he will run out of essentially good things in the world and so he goes in this one last big fling and thinks that's it i'm just gonna have the best night of my life drink heaps of champagne listen to music, dance, do all these crazy things. And if the girl I'm pursuing doesn't want me after that, then I'm done, right? I'll experience all the good things and then I'll leave the world. Um, now, he doesn't he doesn't shoot himself, spoilers. Um, he gets arrested. Uh, but, yeah, so there's, there's an aspect to his character which is very much, um, I think, analogous to how Kikigawa would describe an aesthetic man because the th important thing about this novel um is that none of the brothers except for maybe smerdyakov who's a rumored bastard of the of the father but none of the brothers are bad they're none of them are bad people they're all very different they all lead very different lives they all have moments of failing and yet no one who reads it goes oh man dimitri's such a corrupted character i think nor with only... ivan who's yeah, the second the only character that I got that impression from 
and and albeit I haven't completely finished the novel yet, would mm. be the father himself. Yes, yeah, Fyodor he is Pavlovich. An awful character. Like, like, uh, um, Dostoevsky goes to almost like over detailed into how how much of a bad person the father is. Like, I don't know mm. if you guys remember, like, probably a third through the book, there was a salt um at the monastery, actually. Mm. So, so when he's at the monastery and he has that huge scene and then manipulates everyone into, you know, going there and the old, the old elder dies that night after mm. that big, you know, mm. um, that all of the, you know, in between comments of Dostoevsky there about mm. the father were all just awful. I was reading yeah, it and I was like, damn, is this a bit harsh? Like, cause I think there was one line where it was like, he is a vile slug of a man who's a leech upon this earth or something. And that was Dostoevsky. Yeah. That wasn't anyone else. I was yeah. like, whoa. <laughs> Which he also named that character after himself. They're both Theodores. So. Yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, Dimitri in, in some ways is is very like his father, but but he's honourable, you know what I mean? It seems one of the only areas where there's not much grey area that you can no. misinterpret, though. Like, yeah. like, the author wants you to be very clear that Fyodor Pavlovich is a really, really bad person. Yeah, there's no, there's no point in which I feel like he compromises that. Yeah, you know, mission <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Which is another point that, um, depending on how the discussion goes, we could get to later the idea of redemption. But yeah, so within that category, yeah, you have. I mean, if if they were talking about Haydnist, then yeah, Pavlovich isn't even barely qualifies an aesthetic man because his his sort of love of beauty is so corrupted. And so venal at this point, but Dimitri is still very much a sympathetic character who the reader will like, will really, I think, be compelled by because he, as we brought up, has these desires, as Levi's mentioned, to do the right thing. Um, the second brother, though, Ivan, I find very much like represents or reflects the idea of the ethical man through most of his mm. story. He's an atheist intellectual. He's a philosopher. He's a cynic. Um, he has sort of given himself over to this um, project of rejecting the ecclesiastical traditions of his country and sort of tearing them down and, and kind of in this moment where he, I mean, it's the very famous Green Inquisitor dialogue with his younger brother, Alyosha, who's a novice monastic. Um, and it's like Ivan's trying to put his claws into him and prove to him that his project this idea of tearing things down is the only one that really has um a lasting validity uh and again ivan isn't a character who you the reader will hate like he's a he's a character with a lot with his own failings but he is there's many moments in which the reader will be sympathetic for him because like as i said none of these brothers are bad guys um and then finally you have alyosha as we just mentioned, the novice monastic, and he very much lives this this strange like middle ground between his brothers. He's always being pulled kind of in the direction of one to the other. Um, but he, uh, to me, represents very much that that religious man where he is both committed to uh, a higher model of life, but is still in love with the world and instantiated in it. Um, so, I mean, maybe that is something that would I, I don't know maybe that's something that would help a first-time reader you know like a very abstract map of like here are the three main characters here's a sort of an abstract category or not an abstract but like an existential category to look at mm. 
Um, I like that image. Yeah, looking at them as these three different modes of life. And I, and I do think it is true. Like, having read the book, you kind of, you see that these brothers stand really for all of humanity in a sense in the ways that they perceive and adopt and interact in the world. I think so. Yeah. Do you want me to, now how do we want to do this? Like, do you want to just segue and say, you know, hold on, Sam, we can't, can't. just abstract it out. Yeah. Um, like, and then say, we've got a call coming in sort of thing. <laughs> Should we do it that way? Yeah, we've got a call coming in from someone who'd like to challenge that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, groovy. Yeah. Um, well, do you want me to do a little bit of an end spiel or, or just... Sure, sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll probably just kind of repeat what I was just saying before and I'll pick in the edit which works. Mm. But I hope maybe that this is a helpful model if we kind of just zoom out a little bit and take some existential categories from a kind of contemporary uh, author. It might help us understand the characters of this novel, the three main characters, the brothers, the titular brothers, um, not just in the narrative detail that can get so complicated, uh, but in, a, in maybe a, in a bigger picture framework that gives us something else to think about. And I agree with you, Sam. I'm not going to argue your core point, but there is a danger to you know stripping out the detail in this way. Uh, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. We got a we got a call coming in from our good friend Harry, who'd like to argue with that point as well. Where is Harry? He wasn't he meant to be here? He's disappeared. What's yeah? He's he's not shown up, but he's he's out there living living the life that Dostoevsky, well, quite reasonably advocates for. He's he's out on the monastery. Really? Well, let's hear from him. Hello there, ladies, gentlemen, listeners. I've uh, returned from a monastery trip. It's been very interesting. It, it ties in with a lot of the themes that we're sort of covering this issue. I've had a lot of time to think about certain things, especially within the the brothers Karamazov, because the the monastics and elders and so on play quite a, a central role. A point I found quite interesting is that of, of estrangement and, and strangeness within the brothers. Very early on, there's sort of a point made that Pavlovich Karamazov is sort of one for strangeness, that he's prepared to get himself into strange positions to advance his career by any means. After a sort of problem with his wife, an estrangement of sorts, he gallivants around the town and various other places, strange sort of mourning or wailing, goes on and on and, and does all these things, moving to and fro. The, the interesting thing here is that the people sort of look on at this person who's sort of not doing very well and they're not sure if they should sort of uh, laugh at him or be sympathetic. Pavlovich, he's in response to the lack of fidelity that, that he describes of his wife. He lives this uh, debaucherous existence, almost completing a cycle there, you know, where the disparity is located in his wife. He creates an opposite sort of reaction in his own and it's described that his home is just unsettled, unstable place. He's sort of dulled by drink. He's dulled by the other excesses and passions. He's someone who's sick with a desire. And I sort of wonder in the questions of strangeness, whether this is a, a sort of device where worse than hiding in plain sight, we can use strangeness or estrangement as a way to mask what's actually going on, as a mask for sincerity. So to hide in plain sight is sort of to act as if nothing's occurred. 
and to be hidden away is to is to take yourself out of the public eye and to become a hermit to become invisible such that whatever the sincere sort of appreciation of a, of a time or event or so on cannot be appreciated by others it seems to me that strangeness in the brothers the sort of idea that people are strange in all these different ways is, is this other sort of aspect of that where we'll use a spectacle, we'll use something in the public eye to distract others from what's really going on. It's kind of the, fer- the perfect foil in a sense because people would generally expect that which you want to be hidden to be simply that. It wouldn't be accompanied by an excess in this other degree. But I think that's why it's so, it's so strategic and it's so dangerous in that sense. I think it also sort of undercuts the the social sort of contract we have. We think that people who've done shameful things should sort of act with guilt. Had unfortunate things happen to them, deal with them privately in some way. That we're not affected by what's going on. That people keep to themselves. And it's only really within private relationships that the truth of things be fully revealed. It's not for the public. It's not for strangers to encounter and resolve whatever's going on with you. It's just something that's very interesting to me, the funny ways that we can sort of distract each other from whatever is the, is, is the true reality, the, the masks and shields that we sort of put up to protect ourselves. There's an interesting sort of perspective with the monastics, which is that to become a monastic isn't about running away from the world. That those who think that uh, monastic life is, is to run away from something have got it all wrong. It's not an easy life to be confronted with yourself in an unrestrained sort of way. I think most of us, because we have the necessities of day-to-day existence, we have the practicalities that we need to contend with, we can't cope with being constantly confronted with our own flaws and understanding the, the perilous sort of existence we have, the, the character that we have internal to us when we strip ourselves bare. Thinking back to the previous issue, when you go out into the desert, there's a stripping back of the self because of the harshness, because you can't fake your way out of dehydration and the struggle and the asceticism that true wilderness brings. Something happens. It's, it's enlightening for a reason. I think there's a reason that we, there's a monastic tradition that happens in the deserts where it's austere by nature. Because I suppose what happens in the external world is reflective in the internal world. Like the, how the built environment influences the social life. It influences the political life. So too does the external environment that we find ourselves in influence the internal life of, of an individual. Perhaps part of the Russian psyche that's detached, that has a sort of... Um, a stoicism born of the of the of the cold winters the things that bubble to the surface and sort of complicate life are not very practical that they're going to get in the way of surviving a winter it'll be interesting to hear what you have to say on the topic of estrangement of the brothers considering it's something that happened so early on this idea of strange people and strange stories i wonder if it is the case that it's putting up a show and there's a question Thinking back to Shakespeare, if, if all the world's a stage and we're all actors, who can really be trusted? How do you know when actors are done and the play is complete? Think on that one and I'll be happy to hear back from you. Thanks, Harry. I think um, that point, as Levi, you mentioned, does bring us back 
away from the zoomed out focus and forces us once more to consider the details. And as Harry pointed out, strangeness is something almost irreconcilable both in the story and in our own lives and that's why it's a powerful motif to play with and I think it'd be worthwhile opening discussion on that and I think it returns actually to some of the points that Mike has made earlier regarding the idea that the details of a place all these what we might describe as overburdening details do tie in and have relevance because they inform part of what makes each individual strange. But in particular, I think the most interesting point Harry's brought out is the use of strangeness to, a, to an end, not incidentally, but with a purpose in mind. So I'm excited to bring the discussion forward in this direction now. When we consider the strangeness, the idea of the stranger, the idea of estrangement in the story, we have to zoom back in. We have to come full circle back to those bewildering details that we were talking about right at the start. So the idea of using sort of estrangement and the strange as a mask, I think, is an interesting point. As you were bringing out, Mike, the character of Fyodor Pavlovich is so, like, irredeemably bad. But he deliberately does this movement constantly where he, like, puts on this this mask of distance from the characters he's with by being weird, by being absurd, by being mm. the buffoon. And he likes it. He gets like a, a weird pleasure. I think we got, yeah, behaving we, like this. We got that insight in the monastery. Um, I think where he was, where the elder basically said to him, um, you take pleasure from being the one who is offended. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. You are you are um victimizing yourself because it brings you great pleasure. And and I remember the internal monologue of Fyodor Pavlovich um at that time was like, Yeah, I do. It's great. I love it. I'm gonna keep doing it all, all yeah. the time because it's amazing. I think yeah, I think that's the curious thing about um as you're bringing up, not only does he love to be offended, but he also is the he's broken just about every taboo that can exist without getting you in jail. I think Dostoevsky mm. says that. Like he'll he'll look at anything he can do uh short of being arrested to create scandal. Yeah. Um, oh even even the homeless lady who got yeah, pregnant. Which is that's a yeah, good example. That's maybe the most disturbing, you know, kind of allegation against Fyodor Pavlovich is that there's a a, a homeless woman. Um, holy which, fool homeless A holy fool, yeah. We would today yeah. say, you know, probably mentally unwell, but within this context that she's seen as like a, a religious sort of ascetic who who gives any clothes that she's given away to other people, she gives any food that she's given away to other people, and she just wanders the town throughout the year. Sleeps on doorsteps, doesn't yeah. talk. And so at some point in the story, uh in this sort of prologue she is um found pregnant and the town is scandalized because they they can't imagine like who, who would dare who yeah. would dare and and then the accusations fall on Fyodor Pavlovich because he's known to walk about drunk and there was a story of him he actually said in the bar he was telling his friends in the bar he was like oh she's really pretty isn't she yeah 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 when they are, are kind of as a drunken joke said no one she's not even a woman and he said no I, I, any woman's a woman and so he's yeah. a very disturbing character and he does belong like it's strange because he he's not a he's a landowner by the time the story begins but he's not born a landowner 
he's a stranger to the world of the rich, right? He, Which, he, for he was context, a... landowner in this Russian perspective, that's quite a prestigious... Yeah, yeah. You're pretty much either a muzhik, like a serf, or you're a landowner. Like, that, there's the, there's a big yeah. distinction there. Like, yeah, either you're on land that's owned by somebody else, or you own that land. And um, But Pavlovich, Fyodor Pavlovich, has worked his way up by being a, a, a psychophant, you know, by, like, leeching off rich people and, and running around pleasing them in his in his youth. And then he sort of gradually becomes this, you know, landowner in his own right. But it's through his own actions as a stranger. Like he is this, he's a, he's a stranger to the realm of the rich. And he continually estranges himself from, from people and gets pleasure out of it. It's like his whole identity is in being um, removed from things, you know. There's he a, there's purposefully a, does it though. Like, yeah. He, you remember, especially at the monastery, like I feel like this was a bit of a crux for the story for Fyodor Pavlovich. Mm. But you remember when he went home, he, like he was going to go home. He was like, "No, mm. I couldn't possibly go to dinner. I've embarrassed myself too much." Yeah, there's no, there's no way that they could see me, and everyone else agreed. They were like, mm. "Good, go." You, yeah, <laughs> you've you've been too scandalous. Go home, and then. I remember they all went off to dinner, and he started going home, and then we had this internal monologue again where he's like wait they all think i'm a buffoon and i've embarrassed myself i have i'm embarrassed by myself i'll show them i'll be more embarrassing you yeah know? yeah it's like it's almost it's almost a point of um opposition for him where it's like right if you think i'm a buffoon watch this you know <laughs> and and it's i think that's kind of part of why he's repulsive i mean it is i think it is totally why he's repulsive is because he doesn't like to to kind of exist with other humans, you need to have a share. You need to share some identity. You know what I mean? Um, you know, at the basic level, we three share the identity of being citizens of Australia, and then we we move out. Yeah, we all overlap in different ways. And Fyodor Pavlovich is determined to just continually find. Oh. So and so is my cousin, right? Musov, mm. or he's my, you know, he's a family member. Um, how can I scandalize this guy so much that he will disown me as his family member? You know, that's what happens in that early scene in the monastery, right? He offends this guy Musov so much that Musov says, "I will never speak to you again. I will never go out with you again. I am fully disowning you." And you Peter disgust Pallet me as a person. Loves it, you know. Mm. It's like he desires to be the stranger, and then this is, I guess. This isn't just irrelevant. Like we're not just let me just pause here, right? We're not just gonna <laughs> we're not just saying this because Fyodor Pavlovich is a corrupt character and oh, isn't it isn't it fascinating that Dostoevsky craft is such a complex and corrupt character? It's also, in some ways, it's the central driving factor of what becomes the plot. Because he hasn't just estranged the townsfolk, the priests, the monks, and his family, uh, he's estranged his sons each in a different way. And um, he enjoys that as well. And this then becomes the driving force behind this, the question of who, who killed this awful character, which nobody, like nobody in the book is defending Fyodor Pavlovich and saying, what a tragedy that he's died. <laughs> you know, no one thinks that. And yet it's like, well, he's, pushed himself away from everybody so anybody could have yeah had that 
guilt on them because there's so much hatred for him from everyone. Very interesting character. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to just point out one one more occasion because we've we've very much been talking about this idea of the stranger as a character in relation to Fyodor Pavlovich. But there's also, I would say, obviously it expresses itself in multiple ways throughout the story, but another time it comes out very strongly for me is in Ivan. And mm. Ivan is almost obviously he's estranged from his father. In a sense, he's estranged from the world because he he's so cynical. Mm. But he's also like estranged from himself. I mean, he has like yeah. psychological episodes where he almost disassociates. He yeah, I just struggles so much with his... those. Mm. I just got through the first one of where he's he's on one of his rants. Yeah, it's very intense. I, I followed it like ten percent of it. I felt like Aliotta in the in the shed just listening to his brother going on this huge rant. He's like, I'm not drunk, I promise. I know that there's an empty alcohol bottle right there, and I know I have a history <laughs> of drinking, but I'm not drunk. It's fine. Please, trust me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a whole book dedicated to it, book um, where it's just the full, like... Breakdown. Disassociation, yeah. delirium that that Ivan faces. And, yeah. I mean, in a, in a sense, you can tie this back into the abstract of the ethical man being confronted by... Um, the absolute limit of the ethical. Yeah. But there's also a sense in which it is very particular and it's yeah. very much a liminal experience. And I think um, now now that you've just reminded me of um, perhaps the the real, like the truest son, let's say, of, of Fyodor Pavlovich, which is never, the book never confirms whether he's son or not, but that is the son born of the pregnant holy fool you know, um, Smirjakov, mm. and and it's he's taken in by Fyodor Pavlovich to kind of atone for the rumors that are being spread around. It's like, no, I didn't do it, but I'll also look after him. And goes, well, he can't be that bad because he's taken in this, Which this is infant. A little bit more incriminating, in my opinion, maybe. Like, yeah. But Smirjakov is like he has the sort of he has the cynicism of and and the voluptuousness and the buffoonery of of Theodore just to a T like he's easily like you know he doesn't have as much time in the book to do as many repulsive things or does he um but <laughs> uh nonetheless yeah he's one of the you know like all the sons re- represent maybe a little aspect of their father and they kind of fight against it but they all know there's sort of a curse the Karamazov curse um and yet Smerdyakov just fully embraces that <laughs> uh he's like oh I uh, is strangeness is being an outsider part of the Karamazov identity? I will fully adopt that, and I will be as cynical and as unpleasant as as my potential father. To the point where he's is where where Fyodor Pavlovich is sick of him, <laughs> um, which takes which is, a lot. Yes, yeah. Um, well, I uh, I think with that, I think we've given our audience uh, quite the indication of the challenges we face when attempting to talk about you know, the brothers Karamazov and Dostoevsky as a whole. Mm. So I think we've we've gone from a nice, you know, we've zoomed in and, and said, well, the details very confronting. We've zoomed out a bit and said, well, maybe there's some patterns we could look at to, to break it down. And we zoomed back in and said, ultimately, the details make this book really strange and the characters are too. And it's That's really it's interesting. Compelling. That's yeah. what makes it compelling. Yeah. And um, I can definitely recommend anyone who is kind of a little bit interested just go for it you're going to be yeah. very confused except that you will be confused yeah <laughs> and push through yeah. it anyway 
I think the details we're talking about, that strangeness, which is a part of the complexity, is what makes it rewarding because the complexity just makes uh, for so much richness. Um, so if anyone's been thinking about, you know, reading some Russian literature, don't let the fact that this is the longest and latest of uh, Dostoevsky's novels daunt you because look at us. All three You're of us helping picked it as first. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. All three of us picked it as our first Dostoevsky. You know, look, look, we're all sane and doing fine. You know? Yeah. Um, are I we going to Sam or are we going to you know break down in front of a courtroom while trying to give witness testimony about our brother's innocence and you know see have visions of the devil in the middle of the night and such <laughs> well I certainly hope uh, neither of those happen but I'll, I'll try and um, I'll try and maintain uh, <laughs> I'll try and maintain a pattern of behaviour closer to Alyosha than Ivan <laughs> If, if that brings me to any better end i i do have to say i am invested though i'm about i want to say maybe a quarter or a quarter or a third of the way through i don't know i think you're about a third if you've just gotten onto ivan's rants yeah probably probably a third of the way through but i am i am intrigued you know it's at this point in a book for me personally where i decide i'm bored or not mm. i'm like eh, bored something else and i'm not bored he's very captivating yeah. well which... <laughs> i mean High praise because these days it's very hard to captivate. I mean, I know I'm uh, culpable of it too. It's hard yeah. to be captivated by by reading, but yeah, um, like that's what we want for people. Reading on Netflix, and um, I've chosen this. So, all right, we'll be. I think you'll be hearing from us not not too long. We've got a few more podcasts to record before the end of the year before this issue comes out, um, and we're very much looking forward to doing that because we've got two more works that are absolute troves of delightful wisdom and delightful insight. That I'm very excited to talk about with you guys. Indeed. Absolutely. Uh, thank you all very much for listening. And uh, you'll be hearing again from us soon.